0: My dearly beloved brethren and fellow citizens, having traveled over a considerable portion of these United States and having, in the course of my travels, taken the most accurate observations of things as they exist, the result of my observations has warranted the full, unshaking conviction that we, colored people of the United States, are the most degraded, wretched, an abject set of beings that ever lived since the world began. And I pray, God, that none like us ever may live again until time shall be no more. They tell us of the Israelites in Egypt, the Helots in Sparta, and the Roman slaves, which last were made up from almost every nation under heaven whose suffering under those ancient and heathen nations were, in comparison with ours, under this enlightened and Christian nation, no more than a cipher. I will ask one question here. Can our condition be any worse? Can it be more mean and abject? If there are any changes, will they not be for the better, though they may appear for the worst at first? Can they get us any lower? Where can they get us? They are afraid to treat us worse, for they know well The day they do it, they are gone. But against all accusations, which may or can be proffered against me, I appeal to heaven for my motive in writing. Who knows that my object is, if possible, to awaken in the breasts of my afflicted, degraded, slumbering brethren a spirit of inquiry and investigation, respecting our miseries and wretchedness in this republican land of liberty!
1: Welcome back to the Ending the Myth podcast, where with Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth, as a guide, we are descending through the layers of America's inferno to better understand why this country is the way it is. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And we are back again to do some work on ourselves and maybe, just maybe, grow a little bit as people.
0: We're in growth mindset, baby. (laughs) That quote you heard at the beginning of the show was from the preamble of David Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the world. Written by David Walker, a free man living in Boston in 1829, Walker's appeal was an unprecedented expose on the horrors of slavery and call for the institution's immediate abolition by any means necessary.
1: The appeal was violently suppressed in the South, with the state of Georgia even offering a reward for Walker's capture, dead or alive. A year after its release, in the summer of 1830, Walker, aged 33, was found dead in the doorway of his house. His cause of death is still debated.
0: The first use of the heart attack gun in this historical <laughs> record.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Walker's Appeal came at a time when the abolitionist movement was beginning to experience a qualitative transformation. Prior to the 1830s, there was very little open agitation for the abolition of slavery in America. And those that were advocating for abolition showed little sense of urgency, tending to advocate a gradual move away from slavery with full reimbursement of planters in order to move the country more in line with its stated values. This began to change for a variety of reasons. By
0: 1830, a trickle of runaway slaves escaping to the north had become a flood. As slaves fled north, free blacks and whites in the region began to form an organized network to encourage, assist, and protect runaway slaves, which would come to be known as the Underground Railroad. Through this network, a more radical abolitionist politics began to form. By 1830, free blacks had organized 50 abolitionist organizations throughout the north. By 1836, The U.S. Congress was receiving so many petitions calling for abolition of slavery that they had to pass a gag rule, refusing to accept anti-slavery petitions for consideration.
1: At the same time, as America urbanized and moved away from artisanal forms of production to early industrialization, workers of all stripes found themselves laboring side by side in terrible conditions for low wages, a situation made all the worse by the Panic of 1837. They began to form associations and then unions. It was not long before many in the burgeoning labor movement began to connect their fight with the fight against slavery. Lowell Factory Women formed an anti-slavery society in 1832. In 1841, abolitionist Wendell Phillips asked a meeting of thousands of Irish workers in Boston, Will you ever return to his master, the slave, who once sets foot on the soil of Massachusetts? They shouted, No! In reply, delegates to the New England Workingmen's Association in 1846 prefigured Marx's famous formulation in capital by two decades, resolving that, quote, American slavery must be uprooted before the elevation sought by the laboring classes can be effected.
0: Amongst the capitalist class, many in the north had moved away from textiles and the reliance on King Cotton in the south. Increasing international trade also allowed for many in the shipping industry to get out of their reliance of southern agriculture. This economic distance, combined with a growing resentment over the South's domination of the country's politics, allowed for an increasing number of northern capitalists to come out against slavery, though most still preferred a gradualist plan with resettlement of the black population as a goal.
1: Some bourgeois elements that had remained in the abolitionist movement – moved to the left during this time, with William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator beginning publication on January 1st, 1831. Still, for men like Garrison, the issue of slavery could only be viewed in the realm of Christian morality, safe from the wider implications of a class analysis. As such, Garrison devoted a column in the first issue of The Liberator to attacking the trade union movement for, quote, inflaming the minds of our working classes against the more opulent.
0: The annexation of Texas and the start of the Mexican War in 1846 intensified and further radicalized the abolitionist movement. The Worcester County Anti-Slavery Society was not alone when it declared, quote, the invasion of Mexico by the government of the United States for the express and avowed object of extending and perpetuating slavery is an outrage that has no parallel in the history of Bonaparte, Frederick the Great, or even of Alaric. In the Liberator, Garrison railed against this war for slavery. Quote, "Armed with the proof of our white faces, we can go on cutting our neighbors' throats until we have annexed all of creation and made the whole earth a nest for our country's bird and its rotten eggs."
1: The war would cause a split in both parties in the 1848 election, fatally crippling the Whigs. A new Free Soil Party was created out of dissident Whigs and Northern Democrats under the platform of halting the expansion of slavery in the West. For the first time, a battle line was drawn against the slave power in the South by a Northern constituency growing in strength.
0: For more radical abolitionists, the war was seen as an example of the lengths the slave power would go to support and spread its institution, and gave solid proof that the federal government would be used to fulfill this mission. The war was very unpopular, and the abolitionists' warning about slave power control of the government now found a mass audience. Although the early abolitionist movement had been born out of the reform and zeal of the early 19th century, inspired by the Enlightenment, American Revolution, and the Second Great Awakening, the Mexican War made it clear to many that this was not just another reform struggle like temperance or prison reform. With the stranglehold slave states had over the federal government and many northern politicians and elites, abolitionists realized they would have to be prepared to break rules and laws in order to succeed. It was during the Mexican War that John Brown first began to formulate his plans to establish an anti-slavery guerrilla army in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia.
1: After the war, Whigs and Democrats came together and crafted the Compromise of 1850, a series of bills that shrank the borders of Texas, but included the Fugitive Slave Act, expanding the power of Southern slave owners to pursue slaves in Northern states. It was an attempt to tamp down the growing sectional conflict in the country and secure a future for the Whig Party. It did neither. The compromise put the final bullet into the Whig Party and infuriated Northern abolitionists, who now saw the entire federal government as being in the thrall of the slave power.
0: In 1854, a coalition of former Whigs, Northern Democrats, and Free Soilers came together to form the Republican Party. Initially, they tried to unite around anything but opposition to slavery. But by 1856, a group of Connecticut Republicans came to form the new national program of states' rights. Republican Gideon Wells summed up the platform as, quote, the rights of man, the rights of the state and a strict construction of the Constitution, opposition to the nationality and extension of slavery, and to the aggressive measures and unauthorized assumptions of power by the federal government. In short, the Republicans were running on the right of individual states to oppose slavery in opposition of federal law.
1: Radical abolitionists turned to more direct methods of opposing the slave power, When slave owners' agents appeared in Boston in the fall of 1850, searching for escaped slaves, they were told to leave town in five days or face the consequences. In 1851, federal marshals arrested a black waiter named Shadrick in Boston. When he was taken to the courthouse, an angry mob of whites and blacks gathered outside, broke into the court, and spirited Shadrick off to Canada. Later that same year, 300 federal marshals had to be called in to put down a crowd trying to liberate another captured slave. After the
0: passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, a small-scale war broke out between the pro-slavery forces and abolitionist forces in Kansas over whether the territory would be admitted as a slave state or a free state. Bleeding Kansas was teaching abolitionists valuable lessons about the lengths to which the pro-slavery South would go to maintain slavery, and the length to which abolitionists would have to go to end it.
1: When Preston Brooks severely beat Charles Sumner nearly to death with his cane on the Senate floor, to the widespread cheers and approval of the South, many holdouts in the abolitionist movement began to finally realize that this was a conflict that could not be resolved via facts, logic, and civilized discourse. The Dred Scott decision in 1857, wherein the Supreme Court ruled that no person could be deprived of property, meaning slaves, by any territorial or state authority, essentially backdoor legalized slavery in every state in the Union and guaranteed it spread throughout the Western territories. It was a ruling so egregious that it needed a reply.
0: John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 signaled the increasing desire on the part of the abolitionists to resolve the question of slavery outside of the ballot box. The boldness of Brown's raids and his final words, which called for a militant armed struggle against the slave power, electrified the abolitionist movement. German Marxists, who had poured into the U.S. after the failed 1848 revolution in Germany, had been moving the labor movement towards a more militant, anti-slavery position. After Brown's raid, the Working Men's Association in Cincinnati resolved that, quote, the act of John Brown has powerfully contributed to bring out the hidden consciousness of the majority of the people. Pacifist Stephen Foster admitted, I claim to be a non-resistant, but not to be a fool. I think John Brown has shown himself a man— in comparison with the non-resistance. Owner of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, admitted that after Brown's raid, quote, the end of slavery in Virginia and the Union is 10 years nearer than it seemed a few weeks ago.
1: In the South, the raid was met with fear and panic. Southern elites thought that they still maintained a stranglehold over national politics, but Brown's raid exposed the power of the abolitionist challenge to slavery. For fear of an uprising, slaves in the area around Harpers Ferry were immediately sold south, frequently at a significant loss. Abolitionists were declared as socialists and communists bent on destroying the country, while the Republican Party was derisively relabeled, quote, the Black Republicans. The repressive apparatus in the South was put on high alert as people were warned that, quote, agents of the Black Republican Party had infiltrated the South to foment rebellion.
0: During the 1860 presidential election, the Republican Party, now forced by its base into a position opposing the spread of slavery, still found itself walking a political tightrope for fear of inflaming the Southern sympathizers and Northern financiers. While opposing the extension of slavery into more Western territories, Lincoln supported maintaining the peculiar institution in the South. This did not console Southern elites, however, when Lincoln won and they immediately began moving towards secession.
1: Despite the enthusiasm of the slave-owning class, or perhaps because of it, poor white Southerners were less than enthused about the idea of seceding to protect the institution of slavery for the wealthy. For years, they had been told to think of themselves as the planter's equal. In 1860, Alabama planter and future Confederate Senator William Lowndes Yancey called whites the, quote, Master race, and the white man is the equal of every other white man. Governor Joe Brown of Georgia claimed that poor whites belonged to, quote, the only true aristocracy, the race of white men. But it was plain to poor whites that they hardly lived as the slave owner's equal, nor were they granted the economic opportunities that make it possible to do so. Because of this, opposition to slavery amongst poor whites in the South had been growing over the previous decade. Historian David Williams recounts In
0: 1859, one poor Hancock County, Georgia, laborer confided to an acquaintance that if it came to a war over slavery, he was going to black himself and fight to end it. Without slavery, perhaps he can get better wages. That same year, a farmer in Georgia's Taliaferro County was convicted of hiding a runaway slave for three months. Yet another in Greene County was found making false passes for slaves and, quote, teaching them to write and cipher. Some seem prepared to go much further. In 1860, a large group of Alabama planters gathered to discuss the ways to keep low-down poor whites from plotting to free the slaves and redistribute land, resources, and wealth. An Alabamian confirmed slaveholder fears by pointing out that, quote, Slaves are constantly associated with low white men who are not slave owners. Such people are dangerous to the community. In Tennessee, police arrested a white man named Williams along with 30 slaves for plotting rebellion. Three Louisiana whites were charged with the same offense. Two in Mississippi were implicated in a slave conspiracy. Slave owners acknowledged that many poor whites in the South harbored deep resentment of the Southern aristocracy and a general hostility to the slave system. One planter admitted, I mistrust our own people more than I fear all the efforts of the abolitionists.
1: As for the slaves themselves, throughout the 1850s, slave rebellion was on the rise. With Lincoln's election and having been exposed to much of the heated rhetoric coming out of the South during the campaign, Many slaves in the South thought that the Republicans were going to come and free them. In the months following Lincoln's victory, slaves began stepping up their rebellious activity, thinking that the Republicans would back any slave revolt in the South. Planters complained that many slaves, quote, have got it in their head that they would be set free the day of Lincoln's inauguration.
0: Under these conditions, the state secession conventions were an utter fiasco. Over half of the slave states refused to hold conventions due to the unpopularity of secession. Only in the Deep South would these initial conventions be held. Still, the possibility of secession being voted down was so distinct that Southern elites engaged in a mass campaign of voter fraud and intimidation to guarantee the election of pro-secession delegates. Those who wished to vote a pro-union ticket found that polling places did not carry pro-union ballots, or they were threatened with lynching. Or if they did get a vote off, they were marched back to the polling station at gunpoint to cast pro-secession votes. Many still boldly opposed secession. When a 64-year-old man in South Alabama was told that he would be run out of town if he voted the union ticket, he responded, Do you see this knife? If you don't get away from here right away, I'll cut your guts out.
1: <laughs> Badass.
0: Oh, based.
1: <laughs> yeah. Despite all of this, 40% of voters across the South voted against secession. In Georgia, a majority voted against secession. The governor simply fixed the vote, claiming that secessionist delegates had carried the state by 13,000 votes. In reality, they had lost by (laughs) 1,000. In Texas, two-thirds of the state voted against secession. The state then scuttled the election and sent a hand-picked delegation to Austin to vote for secession. When it looked like that might backfire, the delegation was whittled down further to get the correct outcome.
0: (laughs) So ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. The
0: secession of the southern states made war inevitable. In the South, calls for enlistment to defend the new Confederacy rang hollow for many poor whites. An expatriate community quickly developed overnight in Matamoras as whites fled over the Texas-Mexico border. In 1862, the Confederacy moved to conscription, exempting slave owners who owned 20 or more slaves and allowing gentlemen to purchase someone to fight in their steed.
1: <laughs> of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Many poor whites violently resisted the conscription, and conscription officers could find themselves beaten or shot when entering the wrong town. After turning back a conscription officer, the Dial brothers in North Carolina wrote to the local military authority, If you ever hunt for us again, I will put lead in you. God damn your hellfire soul. Take the hint.
1: (laughs) Contrary to the heroic betrayal of loyal southern soldiers after the war, during the war desertion was a constant problem. Robert E. Lee recorded in his diary in 1862 that desertions depleting his army had cost him the battle at Antietam. In October of 1863, Confederate Sergeant G.H. Bond observed, quote, the troops are coming to the conclusion that this is a war for the rich men of the South, and they are determined to get out of it. By 1864, two thirds of conscripts in the Confederate army were unaccounted for. Some went north with over half a million Southern soldiers fighting in the Union army. Others simply went home. Ultimately, as historian Paul Escott put it, quote, the decision which common soldiers made with their feet sealed the fate of the Confederacy.
0: News of secession and the war shot through the slave quarters of the South, electrifying the slave population. Slaves who could read pilfered newspapers and pass news of the war along to slave congregations. But the slave population, with its rich history of resistance and rebellion, was not about to wait to be liberated by the Union Army. Meetings dedicated to spreading the news of a possible end to slavery quickly became planning councils on how to sabotage the Southern War effort and bring about a Confederate defeat. What occurred all throughout the South was what W.B. Du Bois would call the General Strike. Du Bois described the situation, quote, These slaves had enormous power in their hands. Simply by stopping work, they could threaten the Confederacy with starvation.
1: Panic swept through the South as the strict racialized caste system that was at the center of Southern culture began to break down. In Georgia, a white train passenger worried over the, quote, crowds of slaves freely getting on and off the trains at every country stopping place. In Houston, Texas, a newspaper editor wrote with worried amazement that blacks were refusing to step aside for whites on city streets and sidewalks. A Mississippi minister wrote in 1862 of the changing attitude of his slave, Eliza. Quote, She does not conceal her thoughts, but plainly manifests her opinions by her conduct, insolent and insulting. One woman wrote of her slaves, quote, The people are all idle on the plantations, most of them seeking their own pleasure. Many servants have proven faithful, others false and rebellious against all authority and restraint. They have placed themselves in perfect antagonism to their owners and to all government and control. Nearly all the house servants have left their homes, and from most of the plantations they have gone in a body.
0: Many slaves went beyond simply withholding their labor. The planters' long-feared mass slave rebellion began to take place during this period. This guerrilla struggle flashed up all over the Confederacy. As troops were periodically cycled back to pacify one area in rebellion, another would pop up in the state next door. In Yazoo City, Mississippi, slaves burned down the courthouse along with 14 homes in 1861. That same year in Kentucky, houses and barns were burned by slaves. And, in the city of Newcastle slaves marched through the streets, singing political songs and shouting for Lincoln, according to the local newspaper. In South Carolina, a group of slaves took over a steamship, the Planter, and delivered it and its cargo of ammunition and artillery to the Union Navy in 1862. In Georgia, county officials complained that escaped slaves were raiding food stores and stealing livestock. This, a common occurrence across the South, threatened to starve the Confederate Army.
1: Slaves also engaged in less militant but equally dangerous actions, such as feeding, housing, and hiding Confederate Army deserters and Union soldiers that had either been separated from their units or escaped POW camps. Slaves formed an underground railroad to ferry Union soldiers back to their units to continue the war. For once,
0: it was the white slave owners who were terrorized in the South. The fear of rebelling slaves reached a fever pitch during the war years. Slave owner Addie Harris of Alabama wrote, I lay down at night and do not know what hour. My house may be broken open and myself and my children murdered.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She posted that on the 19th century next door. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Exactly. Whites who had long tortured, raped, and murdered black slaves now began to fear that their former chattel might wish to pay back the favor.
1: Rebellion against the physical terrorism of the planting class became an everyday occurrence. Slaves tied ropes neck-high across stretches of the road in order to catch slave patrollers as they rode by. When a slave patrol tried to break up a secret meeting of slaves in Columbus, Georgia, one of the slaves threw a shovel full of hot coals from the fire at the slave patroller commenting that the air, quote, filled with smoke and the smell of burning clothes and white flesh. A Virginia slave named Clary Ann choked her mistress to death when she tried to whip her. Another Virginia slave named Cresci, described as, quote, a grown young woman and big and strong, was tied to a stump by an overseer in preparation for a whipping. When the first lick hit Cresci's back, she pulled up the stump and whipped the overseer and his two dogs. Another overseer was killed with an axe by slaves when he began whipping a young girl. A victim's comrades hung an overseer with a rope made from their <laughs> suspenders after a whipping. Indeed, such rebellion was so common that a Texas slaveholder wrote, quote, A great many of the people are actually afraid to whip the slaves.
0: Slaves became the primary source of military intelligence for the Union army. Whenever Union soldiers were on the move, slaves came out to tell them about the Confederate troop positions and hidden supply dumps. A high-ranking Confederate official lamented, "...it is a matter of notoriety in sections of the Confederacy where raids are frequent that the guides of the enemy are nearly always free Negroes and slaves." A slave named Mary Lovest, employed at the Gosport Navy Yard, snuck out the plants of the Confederate ironclad, the Virginia. The slave that did Robert E. Lee's laundry was a northern spy that regularly passed information about Lee's plans and troop movements. Mary Bowser got herself a slave position in the Confederate White House, where she passed on information to the North. In 1864, before she could be discovered, she set fire to the house, robbed Jefferson Davis, and fled north. <laughs>
1: Badass! <laughs> it's so cool, man. Yeah, I mean, imagine all this shit is happening, and we get the Civil War movies that we get today. You know, uh, th- th- gods in that's generals the when all this is happening—most
0: baffling <laughs> shit to me. Like this is epic.
1: Yeah, any one of these stories is cooler than whatever bullshit was happening in gods and generals. But yeah, yeah, Jesus real. Christ. White soldiers in the North also went through an important transformation. Historian Chandra Manning writes, quote, The Revolution of 1862-63 to 63 also forced a shift in the relationship between ending slavery and the purpose of the war. In 1861, soldiers saw slavery as something akin to a malignant mole on the body politic. It was an unsightly blemish with the ability to poison the entire nation. But since slavery appeared only in a limited area... Union troops assumed it could be excised with little impact on the rest of the body. After nearly two years of observing slavery, interacting with slaves, and fighting a horrible war, the Union rank-and-file now recognized slavery as a much more insidious cancer, embedded in the very spine and sinew of the nation.
0: One Union private wrote home, "...if all this untold expense of blood and treasure, of toil and suffering, of want and sacrifice of grief and mourning is, to result in no greater good than the restoration of the Union as it was, what will it amount to? Another was more succinct. Fighting for the Union under the old construction was just not enough anymore. We now want a new one that knows nothing about slavery.
1: Manning continues, Quote, the conflict's horrific nature strengthened many soldiers' commitment to emancipation, because no lesser outcome could make the trauma of the war worthwhile. As one soldier put it, only the consolation of a righteous cause could justify the wondrous price of lives, misery, agony, and desolation exacted by the long and punishing war. The senseless destruction had to be converted to purposeful sacrifice offered for a goal that was large enough to make the carnage worthwhile. Preservation of the Union, though important, was not enough unless accompanied by the ending of slavery.
0: With the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, Lincoln and the Republican Party acknowledged in policy what was already a fact on the ground. This war was going to be about ending slavery, not just in the Western territories, but in the United States as a whole. On April 9th, with most of his army having deserted him, Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox. Some lingering battles will still be fought, but the civil war was over.
1: So, yeah, you know, in Grandin's book, he talks a little bit about abolition and he talks a lot more about reconstruction, but he doesn't really talk a ton about the abolitionist movement. And so we decided, you know, that we were going to spend a little bit more time on it. Right. And kind of just go through the broad strokes of it. And there's a reason why we did that. Now, you know, grandin obviously he's writing a book that's as sweeping as into the myth right he's gonna have to pick and choose his battles of what he wants to talk about or else the book's gonna be a thousand pages long and nobody's gonna read it um but the rise of abolitionism was important enough for us to discuss because it represents this thing that we've been trying to talk about this entire time which is it's a fork in the road it's this idea of the road not taken right that Nothing was ever on rails. Nothing ever had to be the way it was. You know, there was always options. Now, one thing that's interesting about it is the role of the Mexican War in sort of supercharging the abolitionist movement, it really did, the abolitionist movement represented this idea of at least tamping down on the unbridled Western expansion that we've seen up to this point pushing back on jacksonian notions of freedom as being free land to the west and the ability to essentially be master of that land uh they were saying that yes they were not against western expansion but they're saying western expansion with cause western expansion with limitations which was of course not the american project (laughs) (laughs) not at all not at all So another reason why this is very important was this movie also shows the power of working class movements and how they become powerful, right? People don't get radicalized in coffee shops or uh, by posting. They get radicalized (laughs) in struggle. And, you know, those that were engaging in the labor struggle in uh, cities in the north were starting to realize that there was this thing called exploitation that could be resisted through collective struggle. And in viewing slavery, they were able to use the idea of freedom, which exists in America and use slavery as a direct contradiction to it, to highlight how unfree many of the people in America were, Uh, not just slaves, but including themselves. Hence the term wage slavery that gets popular at the time. Um, Now, when they use that, they weren't saying we are the exact equivalent of the chattel slave, right? (laughs) You know, that we are being whipped every day and things like that. Although physical violence was common in factories at the time. What they were saying is we exist. If you are forced to labor for somebody else in order to survive, you exist in a case of or a state of unfreedom, right? Your boss controls your life much like the southern slave owner controls the lives of their slaves. Now, engaging in this radical struggle led many in the North to then help slaves flee the South, right? Which put them into contact with people who had actually been under slavery. Uh, It also allowed them to sympathize with the struggle of, you know, Black people in America in a way that had not happened prior to this. Uh, So what we have is this powerful thing of how movements actually happen, which is people come into contact with each other and come into contact with each other. They then engage in struggle together. And through that struggle, they sharpen their political line and the abolitionist movement really shows the power of it prior to 1830. The idea of abolishing slavery in America was a fantasy that, you know, people would just sort of talk about in their uh, salons or whatever in Boston but nobody really thought was going to happen 30 years later the americas find the largest war it's ever fought in order to abolish slavery and that shows what can happen with these sort of movements and it shows too that other roads are possible and you sometimes don't know when they're going to show up but you have to take advantage as the abolitionists did when that other road is available And I think one last thing I kind of wanted to point out, too, which is more just a funny historical note, which is this idea of states' rights, North and South, right? Probably uh, it might have been a surprise to some listeners when we brought up that the Republican Party, when it finally was able to get a large enough mass base to get itself elected and get a president elected and things like that, that it basically launched a states' rights platform. And the whole concept of states' rights largely comes out of Massachusetts, and the state of Massachusetts is saying, uh, we shouldn't be bound by all these laws in the federal government that basically protect slavery. We should be able to just do whatever we want, right? The Confederacy actually had an exact opposite opinion, which was that the central authority actually should control everything. Now, the reason for this is obvious. They controlled the federal government, so they thought the federal government should be the final word on everything. Uh, The people of Massachusetts have very little power in the federal government relative to the South and felt like, uh, no, that shouldn't be the case. Now, not until well after the war does this whole situation completely flip, and then all of a sudden the South starts to talk about states' rights, you know, a product more of protecting Jim Crow than ever protecting slavery. Uh, The Confederate Constitution uh, was actually a very centralized constitution. There's actually very, the, the U.S. Constitution is actually much more federalist than the Confederate one was. But it's just sort of an interesting note in history how uh, words flip and have no meaning (laughs) over time. Yeah. I
0: really think that by doing this research and actually understanding that the slave revolts happened with the slaves themselves, these like radical actions that formed were not just from a liberator of the union army, just coming to save these poor slaves. It was mass militant actions around different plantations that were feeding off of one another. It was a true revolution from the ground up from the slaves. And I just felt like that was just so inspiring. And it's like, not really the story that we typically hear the real rebellion and the real Civil War really came from an uprising of slaves themselves, which takes a lot for an oppressed group, especially under chattel slavery, to rise up in that way and to form, you know, more organization, form more solidarity, and have like these intersections with white abolitionists um, who were also in solidarity with this movement, too. I think that that is just such a fascinating um, story and just kind of goes to show that. I think the story that we are told um, is like not the interesting story or really not even the point of what road could have been taken and what was actually required for this rebellion to happen, to overthrow oppressors that really just felt like they had this like divine right to chattel slaves, to treat people as property For this to actually go down, it was led by the black slaves itself. And I feel like that is just such an inspiring and overlooked part of the narrative of uh, the Civil War.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Munia. And I think with that, uh, we want to leave our listeners with this passage from historian Chandra Manning's book, What This Cruel War Was Over. In it, she describes Union soldiers making their way into the Confederate capital of Richmond. They have won the war, and they have Lincoln and the radical Republicans in Washington to make sure that their sacrifice was not for nothing. The world of possibilities in this moment is limitless.
0: On April 3rd, 1865, Richmond, Virginia, reverberated with so many explosions that it sounded as if a battle was raging within the city limits. In the earliest hours of the morning, the last vestiges of the Army of Northern Virginia set fire to Libby Prison, blew up stockpiles of ammunition, ignited boats, bridges, and wharves, and exploded in ironclad while the Confederate government evacuated the city. By 9 o'clock, detonations continued to shake Richmond, but the entrance of the 5th Massachusetts Cavalry and the 29th Connecticut Infantry, both black regiments, rocked the Confederate capital, as surely as any demonstration of firepower could do. The first mounted Union troops to enter the city, the 5th Massachusetts Cavalry rode through Richmond's thoroughfares as, quote, thousands of citizens, colored and white, cheered and cheered as we rode in triumph along the streets. From a Richmond battlement occupied only hours earlier by members of Lee's army, the men of the 29th Connecticut hailed the sight of the recent Confederate capital, over which majestically waved the glorious stars and stripes. Quote, Thus, another link in the chain of anarchy and degradation had been severed, and trembling like an aspen in the wind over the yawning abyss of misery and oblivion, hangs the remnant of the rebellion. One member of the 29th reflected, Charles Beeman, a private in the 5th Massachusetts Cavalry, told his father even more matter-of-factly that the Confederate States of America have fallen. So join us next week for Episode 7, where we discuss what happens after the Civil War, Reconstruction, that fork in the road, the road that wasn't taken. We have a very, very special guest who's joining us. You don't want to miss out on this one. See you then. que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de